Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society of Gastroenterology. I'm Dr. Charlie Andrews, a GP in Somerset and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. I will be your host during this podcast series and I'll be talking to many different specialists in various aspects of gastroenterology to try to bring you up-to-date, reliable advice about when to suspect, how to diagnose, who to refer and how to support your patients with gastrointestinal conditions in the community. In today's episode, I will be discussing eosinophilic esophagitis with Professor Stephen Atwood. Professor Atwood is an honorary professor at Durham University and a retired upper GI surgeon at Northumbria Healthcare Trust and Durham University Hospitals. He now works as a research advisor, research coordinator and medical writer with over 200 publications to his name, including the first clinical and pathological description of eosinophilic esophagitis. He's recognized worldwide as a leader in research and teaching in eosinophilic esophagitis. Thank you very much for joining me today, Professor Atwood. Thank you very much, Charlie. Professor Atwood, you published the first description of eosinophilic esophagitis about 30 years ago. I have to say, I've never spoken to someone who has discovered and described a new disease, and I'd love to start this podcast by hearing how that discovery happened. Well, yes, it was, as with many uh, discoveries, it was possibly more by accident and design. I was in the middle of doing a PhD project with a famous esophageal surgeon in America called Tom Demeester, and he was really keen on looking at gastroesophageal reflux disease, and my project was on uh, identifying the relationship of that with cancer of the esophagus, adenocarcinoma in Barrett's and, and ways to prevent it. Uh, and in the process of setting up that project, there was a bit of a time gap, and the pathologist who was working with me on the Barrett's cancers said, well, you may as well do something useful and, and have a look at something while, while we're waiting for some of our, our tests to uh, mature. And I had about three or four weeks. And so he said, there's these funny patients that the boss keeps seeing with eosinophils. They seem a bit odd to me. I, I don't know what the story is, but, but I can find the ones who, who've got a few eosinophils from my record. So he gave me the records of patients who had lots of eosinophils in their esophagus. And, Tom Demeester was one of these fastidious Americans who tested everybody with every test. So they, every, every patient had a 24-hour pH test because he thought they all had reflux. And lo and behold, almost none of them had reflux. And he hadn't quite put that together because there was only about a dozen patients over two or three years. And so it didn't register with him. But when I saw this pattern, I realized, hey, this is not only is it not reflux, but it's something completely different. It's new and uh, had the opportunity then in a short space of time to describe the characteristics of those patients. And, and while it took a few years to persuade people that this was really exciting and something new, I had no doubt right at the beginning that this was true because we had found it with an unbiased and objective approach. And something that really struck me when I looked at some of the papers on this was that you had quite a diverse team working on this. Absolutely. I, I really enjoyed uh, working with the pathologist and I would always recognize Thomas Smirk as one of the world's leading pathologists now. And at the time, he was a little bit like me and that he was more junior and didn't have a big reputation. And we also had uh, a boss, uh, a surgeon, and then I had a, and I had a colleague who was doing a, a master's in pharmacy. 
And so he gave me some help in assessing the patients and the treatment. And so it was great to have a small team. I, and as a junior member at the time, it was just really nice to work with a cooperative team. So you published your findings in the late 80s. Can you tell us and can you define what eosinophilic esophagitis actually is? Yeah, well, it's a sort of, it's a difficulty that people have uh, with the discomfort in their chest, which either comes on during a swallow or after they've just swallowed something solid. And it's kind of a feeling of food going down slowly, or in some people, it just gets completely stuck. Usually more of a discomfort than a pain, but something that really limits patient's ability to simply eat a normal meal. And it's caused by inflammation and fibrosis of the esophagus. So the inflammation is eosinophils and mast cells, where you don't see those so easily, so they don't usually get described. And, um, and an underlying fibrosis that makes the esophagus relatively rigid. So it starts with eosinophils and, and gradually progresses to uh, submucosal fibrosis. And that can either cause a focal stricture or the whole esophagus gets a bit narrowed. And I should emphasize that EOE is not related to reflux disease. So the commonest disease of the esophagus is reflux, um, but it is not reflux. It's not caused by acid reflux. It uh, doesn't have the same complications. And so for instance, you don't get Barrett's with it. You don't get adenocarcinoma. And actually, if you have EOE, you're very unlikely to get cancer in the esophagus, which is at least a reassurance. So yeah, it's, a, it's an independent disease separate from reflux disease, although occasionally they might occur together in the same patient. So that's what the condition is, and it's regarded as relatively rare, but it's rapidly increasing. And that increase has been continuous since the first discovery of the condition in the late 80s. And so now it's the second most common disease in the esophagus. And the current prevalence is assessed at about 86 per 100,000 patients. And I think if I'm right, an average GP practice might have five to 10,000 patients. And so you'd expect to see somewhere between eight and 10 patients uh, with a condition in each GP practice. So, so now that it's that common, it's really quite important that everybody at least knows about it and has a feeling for what they should do about it. Absolutely. And can you give us an idea about the types of people we might find eosinophilic esophagitis in? Yeah, it's, it's commoner in guys, so three times commoner in males and females. Um, it tends to occur in younger adults, uh, but the distribution is quite wide. Um, I, I would imagine that the, the mid-30s is the commonest time that somebody will present. They often come with symptoms which they've had for some years beforehand, so that the timing of presentation can be quite delayed. And, and uh, it can occur as young as five years of age, possibly even younger. And it does occur in, in older people, uh, but it's a peak incidence in younger people than you would expect for many other conditions in the esophagus. And it occurs in people who often have um, atopic diseases like asthma, allergic bronchitis, allergic rhinitis, uh, eczema. Uh, interestingly, though, the, the trigger for their allergies is often different to the trigger uh, to what is causing the inflammation in their esophagus. It's not something that's a patient is allergic in many different ways to one trigger. Different organs can react in different ways. Um, and it's been discovered only relatively recently that it's that the globulins that are, are um, involved are IgG4. It's a new form of uh, reactive disease that occurs in different parts of the body. But the really important message is that IgG4 disease is focal. So it's not something you can test by a systemic test. 
that the IgG4 globulins are made in the esophagus can, can only be found there. So it's not something you could test by looking for a blood test or doing some other form of allergy test. In fact, allergy tests are not at all helpful really in this condition. That's all really interesting stuff. And I just wanted to ask a bit about, because you've mentioned about the cause of the disease. Do we know what triggers it to develop in some people? Well, we think it might be um, uh, uh, an antigen that's in the food that the, the esophageal mucosa is reacting to. Um, but we're not certain about that. The only reason we think it's a, an antigen to food is that when you exclude some foods, sometimes the inflammation goes away. But that's not a consistent finding. And we might come back to that when I talk about treatment. Uh, but you can't predict which foods um, are going to be the, the problem. We know that milk and wheat are the commonest triggers. And of course, they're common triggers of other forms of, of allergy and celiac disease and, you know, different things. So what, what's exactly going on? We don't know. And why did it only start about 30 or 40 years ago? We don't know, but it must have only started then because it was extremely rare initially. And now it's becoming relatively common. Possibly in 10 or 20 years, it may, may rival reflux as a, as a frequency of conditioning in softness. And do we know why the incidence is increasing? Well, the two common theories, I'm afraid, fit with many of the other theories of um, allergy formation, and they're the hygiene hypothesis that our bodies are not used to dealing with uh, dirt and germs, and so they're trying to fight something. But there's no good proof of that. And also that there's a genetic change in the way we, we um, uh, have been moulded somehow. If it only began 30 or 40 years ago, and the, the cohort of people getting it seems to be getting older. So I, if you recorded this in 10 or 20 years time, I might tell you that the commonest age to get it would be 40 or 50, because those people born at that time became susceptible, and then it's becoming commoner as time goes on. And of course, we may have changed the way we process our food. So hygiene, food processing, genes, but all of those have some data, but no pattern of conclusive reasoning. So I'd really like to, to start talking a bit about the symptoms and how someone might present with their synophilic esophagitis. Because when you wrote that, that initial article 30 plus years ago, you described a picture that is really very familiar to reading guidelines today. So dysphagia uh, and atopy and those sorts of things. So could you tell us a bit about how a patient might present with asynophilic esophagitis? Yeah, the most important presentation is dysphagia for solids. So if somebody presents that particular symptom, then that has to be the, the, the top of the list in a younger patient for the cause of their problem. Dysphagia for solids can express differently and food bolus obstruction, of course, is the worst type of dysphagia where the food bolus has gone down and just won't budge. And so a significant percentage of patients actually end up at A&E with a food bolus obstruction that has to be disimpacted by emergency endoscopy. So in A&E, eosinophilic esophagitis is the commonest reason for a food bolus obstruction. So it's important that they understand that. And for a patient, about 30% of patients, it's their very first symptoms. They've been swallowing what they think is fine, but when they look back, sometimes they say it wasn't. And then they get this food bolus obstruction. It doesn't go away, so they go to hospital. So about 30% present as an emergency with, without a diagnosis. And then the third common thing in adults is chest pain, but it, it's not that frequent. About 10% of people will say, I have a pain in my chest. Um, and of course, that, if it's very severe, it might be confused with an MI or something else. Now, children are a little different. I think an adolescent or teenager will present just the same way as an adult. 
But when you get down to children below the age of seven, maybe below five, then they rely on their parents to interpret their symptoms a bit more. And they themselves may not have a feeling of what normal should be like. And so the parents often will use terms like um, vomiting or regurgitation or food refusal or, or point to the somewhere in the lower chest and think it's an abdominal pain. I think it's the same set of symptoms, but in the very young children, it's not um, portrayed as such by the parents. And it's not their fault either. It's just that it's hard for the, for the child and the adults to work out exactly what the symptom is. So it does seem to be a different presentation in children. And they could be accused of food refusal, but I mean, that's only fair if they know that the solid isn't going to go down. There's no point in trying that. But they can't express that. So it's not a behavioural problem, and sometimes it comes as that. But, you know, but it's uh, just the kid can't manage. Well, what are the complications of untreated disease? Well, the, the, the most frequent problem is that if it's left untreated, it goes from being an intermittent problem um, to a continuous one. And it becomes a, a, a fibrose esophagus that will sometimes develop a stricture that can be seen on a barium swallow, but you wouldn't need to do a barium swallow really in this because endoscopy is the way you'd go to diagnose it. And patients have a, a really severe quality of life disruption. They, they can't eat normally. They can't, they're the slowest people to finish their meals. Uh, they chew a lot, they have lots of water to drink. They're the last to leave the table. They feel a bit odd and left out, or they get bolus obstructions in their meal and get very disturbed. And this tends to happen more when people eat out. I don't think it's because they're stressed. I think it's simply that when they're eating out, they can't fine tune the way the food is presented to them. So they end up trying to eat something that they hope won't goes down and then it gets stuck. So then they retch and they heave, they get upset, they leave the table, they're often red in the face. Now they're red in the face, they're not suffering a choking where they're blue in the face. I think it's important to identify a food bolus obstruction or something with an airway obstruction. But uh, these are people red in the face, they go to the loo, they try to heave and get rid of the bolus. And then they come back to the table. You, if you do that a couple of times, it's very distressing. It destroys your social life. You just don't want to eat in public. And so it can be quite restrictive uh, socially to have this condition. Uh, in younger children, it can be restrictive nutritionally if they're unable to eat a proper range of foods. But in adults, it's more of a social restriction, as well as being quality of life and disruption with discomfort. Yeah, no, I'm, I have no doubt. I have I've worked in the emergency department before, and I have seen a number of people coming in with food bolus obstruction, and it is not a pleasant thing at all. Um, and you do very much feel for them. So, and and those are the actually those are the only times that I've really sort of seen it being diagnosed. Really, so it just sort of goes with what you're saying about people generally presenting to A and E. So, how do we how do we make a diagnosis of um, of eosinophilic esophagitis? How is the diagnosis actually made? Currently, the only way to diagnose eosinophilic esophagitis is to have an endoscopy of the esophagus and biopsy taken. And it's really important that the biopsies are taken at multiple places because it can be a patchy inflammation, worse in one area than another. And we send them to the pathologist with a question that is to count the number of eosinophils uh, per unit area. And the reason for having a threshold is that when the work was done initially to, to assess the differences between reflux disease and eosinophilic esophagitis, we realized that uh, reflux can have a few eosinophils, uh, usually none, but up to five in some patients. But it was extremely rare for a patient with reflux to have eosinophils more than 15. In fact, if it's more than 15 in the unit of, of area being looked at, um, then 
it's very likely that the patient has EOE and may have reflux hazard. You can have the two conditions together. So there's a threshold for diagnostic certainty. The number is useful. A, for diagnostic certainty, but B, also for follow-up. If you're treating a patient, you want to know, well, where do they start and how far have we come down? And are we on the right track? And then, so it's really useful to have that, that number of eosinophils. Uh, so that's the only way to make the diagnosis. If there's no value in testing the, the blood, uh, sometimes eosinophils in the blood might be up, but it's not a reliable circumstance. In fact, only 5% of patients have a raised eosinophil count. And they don't have a rise in their circulating immunoglobulin. So their IgE, IgA, IgD are all normal. I'd like to talk now a little bit about how we manage it. How do we treat eosinophilic esophagitis? Well, the treatment, uh, there are a number of options. And we've struggled actually for the last 20 years to have what you'd call a reliable treatment. So the, the options in the past were um, forms of diet, and I'll just elaborate on that in a minute, and then a, an alternative to having drug therapies, neither of which, there were two commonly used drugs, neither of which seemed to have a reliability. Um, and the drugs were proton pump inhibitors, and I'll explain why they do work, and it's not through acid suppression, but they only partly work, and topical steroids, and they only partly worked in the past because we were borrowing asthma products and using a spray, trying to get people to swallow it, or getting uh, slurries of budesonide, which mostly ended up in the stomach. So in the past, treatment was really quite unreliable. It's nice to have a dietary option because it, people obviously might like to avoid taking a drug. Um, it's a chronic disease, and so you need a strategy that you can manage for the whole of your life. But we found that because there were so many different foods, that the traditional way of starting a diet was excluding the six commonest foods that people might have as a trigger. And if you chose the six commonest foods, which were wheat and milk and eggs and soya and uh, legumes uh, and, and uh, fish, if you exclude all of those, you have a 70% chance that the patient will be well after six to 12 weeks. The problem with that is you then have to fine tune it because nobody can manage to avoid all of those foods for the whole of their life. And you fine tune it by reintroducing one at a time, taking an endoscope six weeks later to see how do the eosinophils come back a really uh, tedious process, very expensive, really not that practical. So now the commonest way the diet's used is a two food step up, starting with the two commonest ones that are milk and wheat. And actually most people could manage on a milk and wheat free diet. It's dairy intolerances and uh, celiac disease are, are things that are common in the community. You can go to a restaurant and have a meal without dairy and, and gluten. And so 30 to 40% of people will respond to the two food, food diet. Not everybody wants a diet, particularly young men, they're not great at following dietary rules. But if, but about a third of the patients might try a diet and about a third of those will be successful on milk and wheat. And so you've got 10% of patients who could perhaps have a long-term sustainability of dietary restriction. But I would say that if, if you go down the line of diet, you really need to have a dietitian to support what you're doing because otherwise patients tend to dip in and out of doing different dietary things. And then nobody has any idea what's actually working. And if you don't be absolute, if, if you are milk or, or dairy um, allergic in EOE, then you must absolutely never have it. You can't just have it you know, one day of the week and be fine the rest because it will just trigger the inflammation and off it goes again. So you've got to be absolute about it, which makes it quite tough, particularly if there's more than two foods to exclude. So that makes drug therapy popular for people. 
And now the by far the most reliable drug therapy is a dedicated topical steroid called uh, Jorvasin. It's a, it's a formulation of budesonide that's made specially in a tablet that dissolves in the tongue that will then go down with saliva, normal amounts of fluid, no extra fluid. And, and because it's on a very small amount of fluid, it will then just stick to the esophagus as it goes down. So it doesn't end up in the stomach. And it will, if you don't eat or drink for a long time afterwards, then you've got uninterrupted anti-inflammatory effect uh, in the esophagus. So I recommend that people take a Jorvasa tablet last thing at night. Don't brush your teeth afterwards. Don't wash your mouth out. Just do it the very last thing before you lie down and go to sleep. And actually you don't salivate very much when you're asleep. And so you don't wash it off with saliva, even, so it'll stay there all night. So highly effective way of, of treating it. When, when you're trying to induce remission, it's prescribed as a PD dosage, uh, uh, one milligram twice a day. Um, but in the, if you were to use it for longer, it, it's a practical way of sustaining long-term use of the drug. The drug is, is the only licensed therapy, and very fortunately, NICE have recently formally approved uh, Gervaisa, budesonide, or dispersible tablets. Um, and they took a while to do it because of the COVID restrictions and get, getting people to meet. But in June, they finally confirmed that it's their recommended therapy for eosinophilic esophagitis. And it's much more effective than the alternative borrowed topical steroids. Um, it has a side effect of um, candida in about 5% of patients. Uh, so oral thrush can occur but it's mild and it's really easy to treat. So if you see a red throat, uh, throat or if the patient says, I've got a bit of a difficulty in swallowing because I've got a tickle in my throat, then a uh, nice statin um, suspension, easy to take. Um, and you, you still continue with the budesonide. Don't stop that. And in, in most patients, it will get rid of the candida and it doesn't come back for a long time either. So it's not something that becomes a repeated problem. And, and budesonide is a very good, topical steroid because it has a tiny effect on the body system. It gets metabolized first pass through the liver and uh, it doesn't cause systemic steroid side effects. And we don't advocate systemic steroids at all because of the side effects. The drug has to be used long-term, so it's definitely not on. So I, I should also mention the use of proton pump inhibitors. It was noticed that people who were on proton pump inhibitors, uh, sometimes the eosinophils would diminish or go away. Um, and in a percentage of patients, they would feel better. Now, about 50 to 70% of patients on, on uh, PPI say they feel a bit better, but not doesn't resolve the symptoms. It seems to resolve symptoms in about 30 or 40%. So the minority of patients who have a PPI, and it is usually those with mild disease, will say they feel better. Now, I say they will say because we've not actually done a placebo-controlled trial on this. And with every drug, you get a bit of placebo but there's no doubt it does diminish the number of eosinophils in the lining of the mucosa. And the mechanism of that is not through their acid suppression, but it actually stops the effect of a cytokine called eotaxin-3. So it's a partial inhibitor of eotaxin-3. So it reduces the number of eosinophils that might end up in the esophageal mucosa. And that's just a word of warning that if the patient is thought to have reflux, and commonly if patients come to the GP and say, well, I've got I've got indigestion, doctor, and they point at their chest because they're told that that's what a, a pain is here. Uh, the doctor may have ended up assuming that the word indigestion means that they've got acid reflux and then tried them with a course of proton pump inhibitor, which may partly work, 
and then perhaps sent them for an endoscopy. And, and unfortunately, in those patients, the eosinophils might be suppressed, but the symptoms are not fully gone. There's still a problem. So if you do send a patient who's had a PPI uh, for endoscopy, we, we would urge you to stop the PPI for a few weeks. And there's other reasons for stopping the PPI, uh, such as testing for H. pylori and dyspepsia. And, and so if you stop your PPI for three weeks, we feel the eosinophils will bounce back. And so they'll come back pretty quickly and the diagnosis is easy to make. But I, I would say that in terms of diagnosis, it's much better to just send a patient with dysphagia straight for an endoscopy because there cannot obviously be cancer or other more serious causes. And uh, whatever the cause of dysphagia, it's unlikely to go away unless you know the diagnosis. So you may as well send them for endoscopy after PPI. Great. Th thank you so much. That's really useful advice as well around the um, PPI use. And uh, yeah, so some really practical points there. Thank you. So just to finish off, is there anything on the horizon in terms of diagnosis and treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis? Yeah, the, 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 the restriction currently is that to diagnose it, you have to have endoscopy and biopsy of multiple samples. And so people are hesitant to have an, an endoscope, um, naturally enough, but it is the, currently the only way to make the diagnosis. And also I've mentioned that um, in terms of checking is the drug or is the therapy working, whether it's diet or drugs, uh, you need an endoscopy and biopsy to look for the acidophil to see how, how the patients are getting on. So if there was an alternative, to getting uh, the diagnosis, which didn't involve endoscopy, this would be wonderful. And um, there are two uh, things that are being tested. First of all, there's a, a sponge that's in a capsule that can be swallowed that has a string on it. And so you can swallow a capsule and it's called a cytosponge. And when you take a little drink of water, the capsule itself dissolves and the sponge pops out of the capsule on its string and you just pull it back. And it does a fantastic dredge of cytology in the esophagus. And it's reasonably accurate at diagnosing eosinophilic esophagitis. So it's been tested in the past, not 100% usable. If you've got very severe dysphagia, you might not want to swallow the capsule. But actually about 90% of people who have EOE can swallow the capsule. And uh, so it is a way of doing the test, perhaps at a GP surgery in the future, once people learn about it, um, to, to, to potentially exclude uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. And of course, it can then be used in follow-up. So if you've got a proper diagnosis on a, on a biopsy, you can, uh, you can say, right, well, let's see how your therapy is working. We work to do research-wise uh, to, to make that comparison, but that is ongoing because with the restriction of people getting access to endoscopy, particularly in areas like Barrett's surveillance, we're looking at alternative ways uh, and using the cytosponge in Barrett's. So it may well be the expertise for using it to diagnose or follow-up EOE will be common. And then the other test that can be used is a string test. It's, it's, it's similar in some ways to the cytosponge in that it's the string can be tied to a tooth and swallowed, and it's about the length of the esophagus, and then it can be left in for two hours and um, without eating or drinking, and then taken out, and then the bit that was in the esophagus can be, can be isolated. In fact, you can then cut it into thirds, and you can look at the proximal middle distal bits and on the string, you can find the products of eosinophil degradation and other things like eotaxin-3. And so you can actually test what's going on in the esophagus. It's not a popular uh, test yet because it's not really been well studied, but it is again, something that could be done in a GP practice and doesn't need hospitalization for. And it's very good with children. People use string tests in children in other circumstances. So it's not a, 
unfamiliar thing for pediatricians to, to supervise. And if we could have a cytospongular string test usage, it would make the management of patients with EOE so much more comfortable. Having an endoscopy can often be a trying process, an anxiety-provoking issue, and that would be much better in the future to try and have a, a diagnostic process that's more comfortable. Absolutely agree. Yeah. So, I mean, if there are any really interested uh, GPs out there listening, they'll be uh, looking at whether they can get a cytosponge in their surgery and, uh, you know, can they start up a, an EOE service? I would think that'd be great. So are there any future developments, do you think, in terms of treatment? The most research that's going on at the moment are using the biologic agents that, that uh, fight the immune system because Clearly, we understand a little bit about the immune process. And so we can use drugs to um, inhibit various things like IL-13, IL-5, different forms of interleukin activities. So there are biological agents that are being tested. The difficulty with those, of course, is they're hugely expensive. Uh, the cost of a biological therapy is absolutely enormous. And um, they usually have to be given by injection. They have some advantages in that perhaps the injection doesn't have to be given on a daily basis. They might give the injection uh, once a week or once a, once a month. And so those are, those are advantages. Um, and it would be really nice if we could stop the process, not just inhibit it. And uh, so there is a search with biological agents to see can they actually uh, call a halt to the disease. And in younger children, it seems that some therapies might be able to do that. So there is hope, but I, but I don't really see, uh, until we have a better understanding of what's going on, I, I think people who get EOE are kind of stuck with it for a long time. So we do need long-term treatments that are cost-effective. Um, and so the biological agents will complicate the story rather than provide the solution, in my view. And therefore, a much cheaper drug is a topical steroid that just directs the therapy where it needs to be. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm going to just ask you to give us any top tips, take home points from, um, from this that you'd like to pass on to our listeners today? Yeah, well, my main top tip is if a patient presents with indigestion, heartburn, or dyspepsia, all of those are interpretive words, have no diagnostic meaning. So in any of that circumstance, tease out exactly what the symptom is, get the patient to explain what it is and when it occurs. And then you can distinguish the symptoms of reflux from the symptoms of eosinophilic esophagitis because they're really quite different. Uh, and it's really important to be able to do so. A patient with dysphagia needs endoscopy and biopsy for reasons to exclude serious disease, but also to diagnose EOE. A patient with, with the symptom of heartburn who's got a discomfort in their esophagus uh, after a meal or an hour later and associated with fluid coming up the taste like acid, well, they don't need endoscopy. They do need a therapy with a PPI. So, so be careful before you start a PPI to tease out the precise symptoms that the patients are getting because that's the commonest reason for patients failing to have a diagnosis for three or four years. And be aware that reflux is not related to eosinophilic esophagitis. They are separate conditions that need separate approaches to therapy. And I guess also to be aware that food bolus obstruction, the commonest cause is eosinophilic esophagitis. And since a third of the patients present like that, anybody who's been to AD, food bolus obstruction must have endoscopy and biopsy. So if it wasn't done at the time, then please arrange it uh, subsequently. Uh, otherwise, the patient will just come back with another one or, or have a 
poor quality of life when they try to eat. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this with you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I found that absolutely fascinating. I'm sure that our listeners will as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Charlie. Bye-bye for now.